And looking out over here, I see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of not so familiar faces. Um, for those of you to whom I am not so familiar, uh, I'd like to just say that my roots in this church go back to the 1940s. Not that I was here then, but this became my father's church at the time that he became a Christian. He was active here with the young peoples. And in 1950, this church uh, sent John Coop as a missionary to Ethiopia. And five years later, when he returned for his first furlough, uh, he brought with him a wife and two children. And so at some time that year, I was paraded up here as an infant and dedicated in this sanctuary. And for 40 years, this church sent a check to support my parents in their missionary work. Didn't miss a month for 40 years. And um, Margaret, my wife, and I attended this church for 17 years. And that's been about 20 years ago since we moved on. But this place is deeply familiar to me, even though I've been a little, uh, haven't been here that much lately. So I will echo the words that my father used to always say whenever he stepped into a pulpit. He would say, it's a great privilege for us to be with you here today. And indeed it is for me to be uh, at Elon Chapel this morning. So now I'll turn my attention to the message, uh, When Heaven Touches Earth, and it's really a message for Transfiguration Sunday, which was last February. <laughs> but you're going to get it today. Because <laughs> when I was young, I sometimes fancied that I could see an aura around the head of a person who was preaching or telling a particularly compelling story of an encounter with God. I grew up in a religiously devout home that involved a lot of church going. And as a result, I heard a lot of thrilling testimony about the activities of God in the world we inhabit. Telling the stories of Jesus was a life calling to those I knew best and loved most. Yet, steeped as I was in this culture of religious devotion and belief, and for the most part accepting its dogmas and truths, I also learned to sniff out the phonies, to distrust the hypocrites and disdain the showboaters, of which there was no shortage. Still, sometimes when I squinted just right, a sort of halo seemed to emanate from the head of a person whose story rang true, whose character seemed consistent, whose humanity thoroughly embraced the presence of a living God. And that felt good. It made me feel like I belonged. It bolstered my belief. It helped me to behave. Now, a schoolboy's squint is a far cry from the revelation of God's glory that was described in our gospel reading today. In this incredible scene, the human Jesus underwent a remarkable transformation. His face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes took on an unnatural shade of white, gleaming brighter than the teeth in toothpaste commercials. Dazzling white, the text says, such as no one on earth could bleach them. That would be truly unnerving, but wait, it only got more eerie, more uncanny, more supernatural. The three disciples that Jesus brought with him on this mountaintop spiritual retreat, Peter, James, and John, were shocked beyond belief. Not only had the man they worked with day in and day out turned a brighter shade of pale, but he was busy carrying on a conversation with two eminent and centuries dead Bible characters, Moses and Elijah. The, the disciples were amazed, confounded, confused, and dreadfully afraid. Peter began to laugh. He was an inveterate entrepreneur, instinctively producing plans to do something material to capitalize on the moment. But really, he was just babbling. He was absolutely terrified. They all were terrified, especially when a cloud suddenly overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud filled the space, this is my son, the beloved, Listen to him. And that's where the extraordinary aspects of the scene came to an end. And the semblance of normalcy returned. Suddenly, it says in verse 8, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, only Jesus. And then Jesus instructed them to keep quiet about their experience. No telling. No telling, at least not until, ap until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I'm not sure what that cryptic aside meant to them until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It could only begin to make sense in human terms after the essential elements of the Christian story had come to pass, until after Jesus was crucified and a few days later returned from the realm of the dead as a living being. The death and resurrection are the critical events that put Jesus firmly on the map as both human and divine. The transfiguration scene on the mountain, dramatic as it is, was only a flickering premonition of the greater glory to come. A schoolboy's evil apprehension of a nimbus amidst the shining of a spotlight. I'm not going to attempt to explain what happened on the mountaintop that day. The church has typically understood it as a revelation of God to Jesus' disciples about the true nature of Jesus. The dazzling appearance of Jesus points to his future glory and the appearance of the Old Testament figures demonstrates that Jesus and his mission satisfy the religious expectations of his time, fulfilling the law as seen through Moses and the prophets as represented by Elijah. 
Christian tradition sees this passage as a clear revelation of the divinity of Jesus, a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. On the shadow side, it also suggests that God somehow sanctions the path of rejection and suffering that Jesus followed. Realities his followers must not be surprised to encounter. As I reflected on this passage, I thought of myself as a young boy yearning for some kind of proof that the religious stories I heard every day were fundamentally true, that I was back in the right horse. And I remembered those quasi-mystical moments when an aura would seem to appear and my beliefs would feel validated. There were times when I would try to manufacture the aura and the feeling, but I could tell the difference between something of my own doing and something that simply came, like an unexpected gift, an uncommon grace, a glimpse of transcendent glory. Since those days, I've been both a believer and unbeliever in the faith of my fathers. I've both conformed and rebelled. I've been attracted to the humility taught by the church and repulsed by the hypocrisy and power mongering so prevalent within it. I've sought the company of those who claim to follow Jesus and turned my back on them at times as well. I've swallowed the teachings of the Christian church and choked on certain chunks of it. I wrestle daily with the Bible, and it continues to both comfort and confound me. I am still looking for the nimbus, the mark of righteousness and truth that gives hope for the journey in the here and now, and consolation for the impending abyss of eternity. This is about much more than believing in the right set of doctrines or simply seeing ghosts. I am looking for the presence of God in the mess of this world. I'm looking for glimpses of glory in the midst of the ordinary. Like countless other people, I am haunted by all sorts of longings and desires for significance. I want to be confident that my life and my loves matter, that they count for something in the big picture. I want to anticipate that something good, something greater than my earthly experience, is still to come. These are a few of the things that I yearn for. I want that veil between heaven and earth to be lifted, if only for a moment. I want the barriers separating sacred from secular to disappear, to be in a thin place where God's presence is manifest. I selfishly want to feel the comfort of a sense of divine companionship in the hurly-burly of my constant confusion. In my weakness, I need my confidence in God to be confirmed. I want more mountaintop experiences. I want to be present where heaven touches earth. Is this possible? Can we, as human beings who inhabit this world of dust and disease, of brokenness and conflict, actually get a taste of 
the divine in this world? Some years ago, I blundered into a thin place and experienced that in retrospect had a transformative influence on my life. It happened when I had to spend the better part of a day at a hospital. With a couple of hours on my hand, I gravitated to the chapel and was soon entranced as I read the open journal where ordinary people poured out their hearts to God. They were yearning to connect. And I'd like to share a wee sampling from what I read that day. God grant that I may live to fish until my dying day. And when my final casts are made and life has slipped away, I pray that your great landing net may catch me in its sweep. And in your mercy you may grant me big enough to keep. After that comforting bromide, the same hand scribed in a stronger script this spontaneous outburst. I'm so very sorry for all the terrible things I did in my life and that I never amounted to anything. Zero. Here's another one. I'll try to read it as I felt it was written. Please don't take away my hero. Please, please, please. Please, please, please save her. Please, 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 please save my mom. Please, 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 please save Jenny Lynn. Please, 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 please save my mom. Please, 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 please. I'm sorry I didn't keep my promise, but please don't take my mom because of it. I'll take her cancer. I will take her cancer. The journal did not record how these stories turned out. Probably quite sadly. They do, however, demonstrate how when our flesh feels weak and vulnerable, our spirits reach out. And this helps to explain why hospitals are places where key elements of humanity, including our desire to connect with our Creator, are apt to come to the fore. What struck me when I read those desperate pencil scrawls nearly 10 years ago was the authentic cry of the human heart, raw and real. It was humbled humanity calling for a touch the living God. I said it was transformative for me because it stirred within me a desire to hang out in the thin places. These days I make my living as a spiritual health practitioner at Health Sciences Center. Every day I interact with people going through experiences that have them thinking about their relationships and their conduct, their future, and their past, and many are wondering about God and eternity, about this world and the next. And this kind of questioning puts people into a headspace where we will be more receptive to a touch from something beyond our purely material circumstances. It is the allure of the transcendent.
So just briefly, I want to comment on two responses that seem to occur whenever human beings recognize the nearness of God. And the first response is fear. You can read about it in many Bible stories, indeed, right from the very beginning, when God came to visit Adam and Eve after they'd eaten the forbidden fruit. They did. They were afraid. They didn't want to be seen the way they were. When the prophet Isaiah had a divine vision, he fell on his face because he could not abide the near presence of the living God. And in our gospel story today, Peter, James, and John were terrified. And the fear factor arises for a very good reason. None of us are worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. Adam and Eve had disobeyed, and they knew the reckoning was at hand. Isaiah said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fear arises because we feel unworthy. Didn't you hear it in those hospital messages? So often, people facing death, either their own or that of a loved one, they think about how they spent their life. And they have regrets. They lament lost opportunities. They feel the pain of fractured relationships. They want to make things right. I'm sorry I didn't keep my promise, but please don't take my mom because of it. I'll take her cancer. They instinctively sense that an auditor is examining the books of their lives and the figures don't add up properly. There's a deficit to consider. I'm so sorry for all the terrible things I did in my life and that I never amounted to anything. Zero. In these moments, many people are overcome by a desire to reconcile. I'm very sorry for the things I've said and done, so if you can forgive me, please let my mother go in peace. This dynamic occurs when we are aware that we are in the presence of a living God. A sense of the presence of the divine enables human beings to see the crud of our lives for what it is, and also to see the splendor of God's beauty in us and in our world. Guilt may be a natural thing to feel in the presence of a holy God and fear because of it. But the second thing that we need to notice about traffic in the thin places is the presence of grace. The God of the Bible does not delight in guilt or shame. On the contrary, God pulls out the stops to make it possible for people to draw near to him and to be at home in the splendor of his glory. Through Jesus, who lived an exemplary life and constantly brought himself to attention before God, we can discover the way to experience the divine in greater and increasing measure. 
Patients don't see an aura around my head as I hover over their beds. But they do speak of their hopes and their fears with uncommon honesty. Some are satisfied and content, others angry, tortured, and restless. Some grasp relentlessly for certainty in the face of their frailties. But most are satisfied with the simple comforts of deep human interaction and the sense that some transcendent being knows and cares. No one rejects love and acceptance. I pray that your great landing net may catch me in its sweep, and in your mercy you may grant me big enough to keep. I find it tremendously encouraging to see in our text that at the heart of the transformative experience is the undergirding message of God's love. The voice from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Even in the realm of human suffering, the voice from the heavens speaks of love. Christians traditionally see the Transfiguration as a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, where he resolutely turned his face toward Jerusalem and accepted the prospect of suffering it entailed. God, he was confident, would not ultimately abandon him. The Transfiguration is, among other things, an instance where humanity glimpsed the presence of a wild, and holy God, the thinnest of thin places merging the temporal and the eternal, the material, the ethereal, the imminent and the transcendent, with Jesus himself as the connecting point, the bridge linking heaven and earth. I want to suggest that the thin places are all around us. I want to suggest that the glory of God will shine upon us. I want to suggest that the proper fear we feel can be set to flight by experiencing the grace that God longs to give us. God is present in our troubles. God is also present in our satisfactions. God is love. Let's pray. God is our refuge and strength very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though that its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns.